Here in this place, it's easy to say, Merry Christmas. In this place, it's safe to assume that this holiday season of Christmas has something to do with the Christ coming into the world. It's okay and safe because here we confess together that God became human in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Christmas is all about. And we celebrate that fact, that biblical truth on that day, on this day, on Christmas Day. And even we take the time to look forward to that day, to prepare for that day, to meditate on the whole experience of the Incarnation uh, by setting aside those four weeks of Advent leading up to Christmas, not to hype everybody up for shopping, um, but to help us to look deeper into the love and the grace of Almighty God and to appreciate and meditate on his presence with us in the Incarnation. The Bible tells us that this Almighty God has been given a face and a name, Jesus, the Word, Logos, God in the flesh. So continuing in Advent tradition, we too wait and we meditate and we look forward to the day God became one of us. John's Gospel is very profound in its uh, pronouncement of this truth, but the Old Testament pointed to this truth as well. From Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And Isaiah 9, verse 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So this child would be born of a virgin would be given as a light to the Gentiles, the, the non-Jewish peoples of the world, would be called, it says, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And these are profound names to be given to a human child. And we're obviously led to believe that the Messiah who would come would be more than merely human, merely a human being. This may seem very obvious to many of us here this morning, but it's not for everybody. There are some religious groups and others who exist today who have a really difficult time seeing Jesus as anything other than a mere human being or a person or a good teacher who lived a long time ago. And this has been true of many groups that have existed throughout history. And so, time and again, the church has had to uh, go back to the Bible to refresh herself as to why she believes so strongly in Jesus who has two natures human nature and a divine nature. The prophecy of Isaiah is one of those biblical treasures that teaches us this truth of the incarnation. The, the gospel of John as a whole is another treasure of scripture which teaches us the truth of the divinity of Jesus. Chapter 1 of John in particular is very profound, very powerful and poetic and well even hymn-like in its proclamation of this incarnational good news. So we want to take a close look at what the Gospel of John, chapter 1, has to say about the nature of this Jesus that we're looking for and we're waiting for. But I want to give you a quick overview of this passage that we're going to be looking at today. An overview of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Uh, first, the word at creation in the first five verses. Second, the witness to the word by John the Baptist. Third, the reactions to the word by the world. And four, the confession of the word by the church. 
These are movements that we can see in this passage. In this passage, John appeals to diverse groups of people in the world, and he frustrates people too. I know the Gospel of John is one of those Gospels that we're told to tell a new Christian to start reading, and I always wonder why. That first chapter can be so confusing. I know that when I was a newer Christian in my uh, young uh, 20s or at 18, and reading the first chapter of John didn't make any sense to me. But I had to read the whole gospel. It made more sense. But he frustrates the logical and scientific types among us who simply are looking for a, a, the right answer. Can't you just give it to us plainly? Can't you just give it to us straight, John? Why all this flowery language, this cryptic language? For some reason, John doesn't answer the questions that many of us you know, scientific modern folks come up with in the world. So he frustrates the scientific, the linear thinkers of today who just want us to want the gospel to give it to them straight. But he also frustrates the poets and the songwriters among us too, I think, because he throws in some of this history about this guy named John the Baptist, and he throws in these declarative statements about the importance of receiving and believing in Jesus. It, very exclusive too, by the way. It's almost as, he's, as if he's trying to proselytize. <gasps> Shock, faint. As if he's trying to evangelize. Oh, no. Of course he is. He's John the Evangelist, right? We call him the Evangelist for a reason. So this is more than poetry. It's more than history. It's more than science. This is the gospel. And the book of John is prof has a profound and a cosmetic, uh, excuse me, not cosmetic, but a cosmic, a profound and cosmic approach um, to the story of Jesus and the history of Jesus. Yet his appeal is not just to believers in John's church. And I think John has a wider audience in mind when he wrote this gospel. In fact, using the word, word itself indicates that he's trying to reach a broad group of people from many nations and religious persuasions and worldviews of his day. He also whets our appetites for what's coming later in the Gospel of John. We're never meant to just read John chapter 1 and leave it there, right? It's an introduction to the rest of the Gospel. We're meant to read the whole Gospel. So he whets our appetites for really what's coming up next in the Gospel. And he does so appealing to as diverse a crowd as you could get by using the word, word. In the beginning, well, if we're familiar with Genesis... Our, we might want to finish that sentence and say, in the beginning, God, who created the heavens and the earth. But he doesn't go there. He says, in the beginning was the word, was the word. The Hebrew word for word is devar, where it has a very active sense. God spoke and he brought things into being by his word. So speaking the word has this creative doing power, an expression of action versus an expression of thought. Speech or saying the word does something, in other words. Like Psalm 33, verse 6, it says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. The word does things, according to the Hebrews, according to the Jews. God spoke the word and it came into being. God spoke the word and it happened, right? It's the power of the spoken word. And that's the sense of the Hebrew devar for that word. But to the Greeks, the word is logos. Logos. The meaning is more intellectual. It's more abstract. It's an expression of thought. The logos gathers, it orders, it thinks, it analyzes, and it's associated with reason. To the Greeks, logos is logic or reason. 
Hellenistic world of the Greeks understood Logos as the wisdom of the universe which steers and governs and directs all things. It, it was the divine word given to oracles and, and prophets. The Logos was commonly understood as the common law of, of nature, of the universe, maintaining order and uni unity throughout the universe. It was even a way of creation and connecting with what is true. So the ancient Assyrians and the Egyptians and the Babylonians of the ancient Near East would have understood the word as being this cosmic power and force, even a wisdom that ordered and controlled the universe. It was the philosophy of the day, in other words, the, the worldview. It may be strange to us, but it was the common worldview in the day. So something more than the material world is out there, and people have suspected as much for a long, long time now. And John, the gospel writer, with the help of the Holy Spirit, taps into this long history and tradition of, shall we call it, intelligent design or universal providence, God controlling, governing the world. It wasn't just Jews and Christians who were picking up on this. And so he takes us from the beginning of all things in cosmic scope to show us the word, the Logos, who was with God in the beginning and who was God, the word who actually created all things from the beginning, the word who became a person in Jesus, the Messiah. So the first movement that we have in our passage here from John chapter 1, first five verses, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So Jesus was mighty God before his birth. As it says in Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Jesus is a mighty God in his life on earth. Not just a man with the power of God, but Jesus is the God of power. And so as we look at the scriptures... We see that he has power over nature, power over disease, power over demons, power over sin, power over death. To those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians 1, 24. So John takes us from the cosmic beginnings right down to earth to a very specific person who's actually John the Baptist who points us to the word, the word, Jesus Christ. So this is our second movement now, the word, the witness to the word by John the Baptist, verses 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, but he came only as a witness to the light. So the word, Jesus, was a light that had dawned on the land of the Gentiles, Galilee of the Gentiles, as it's mentioned in Isaiah chapter 9. He is, he is the enlightenment that so many are looking for. He's the nirvana, he's the moksha as far as the uh, being released from something is concerned or liberated from something, we're liberated from sin through him. He is the one and the only, it says. 
very specific and very exclusive as well. Jesus is the revelation of God, the manifestation of the one and true God of the universe. Jesus is what so many of the world history have understood to be the word, the logos, the wisdom of the universe. God or truth or wisdom or providence incarnate, enfleshed in a person. And at the incarnation, God speaks the word, and the word becomes flesh. So John the Baptist prepared the way for him, pointing us to him. Of course, then and now, the world does not, did not and does not recognize uh, Jesus as the word from God. He came to his own, but his own did not recognize him. So the third movement we have here are the reactions, of the, uh, reactions to the word by the world. In John chapter 1, verses 9 to 13, this is the third movement, the reactions to the word by the world. Beginning with verse 9, it says, The true light that gives light to everyone has come, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Jesus came, the world missed him. Christmas came and went, the people missed him. His own wanted nothing to do with him. It still happens today, doesn't it? Spiraling down the Yuletide days of Advent, racing to the manger in our shopping frenzies engulfed in the Christmas music of the stores. Will we miss Jesus this year too? What is your reaction to the word made flesh? Do we allow this reality to sink into our lives? Will we accept the baby in the manger, who of course doesn't remain a baby, who became a man, who taught us things about sexual ethics, taught us about loving and forgiveness for our enemies, about caring for the poor, who eats with tax collectors and sinners alike, who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. See, the baby doesn't remain a cute little baby in the manger who doesn't say anything. It grows up to become the Messiah, the Christ, who has a lot to say about life and how we live our lives. To those who get him, John says, to those who receive and believe in the word made flesh, they are the ones who are given the right to become children of God. Children born again, completely by grace. Again, not everyone by nature is given that right. Not everyone who is born into a Christian family. Not everybody who goes to a Christian school. Not everybody who goes to a church. But it says to those who receive and believe in God incarnate in Jesus Christ, they're the ones to become children of God. To receive him, to believe in him. Have you received him personally? Or are you just going along with the crowd, not thinking too deeply about things? Have you received Jesus? Do you believe in him? So John, he continues, and he makes another connection to the Old Testament. He says the word tabernacles, or pitches its, his tent among us, just as he was present with his people in the tabernacle of long ago in the Exodus. In Christ, God will be with those who receive and believe him. 
The glory of God is revealed in Christ, just as in the days of Moses, when the glory was revealed to God's people of the Old Covenant. What's your reaction to the glory of God in Christ coming into our midst in the person of Jesus Christ? So the fourth movement today, the, con the confession of the word by the church. The confession of the word by the church. We begin at verse uh, 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Verse 16, out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father and has made him known. You see, the law was given through the first exodus from oppression in Egypt under Moses. Jesus now comes full of grace and truth in the second exodus, freeing those who would receive and believe him from oppression to sin and darkness and spiritual death. He has come as the everlasting, eternal, loving, grace-filled God who existed from the beginning. The church has confessed this for two millennia now. Jesus existed long before becoming a baby in a manger. The Gospel of John especially testifies to this. We look at John 1, 1 to 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. In John chapter 8, verse 58, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. With no end and forever. I repeat Isaiah 9, 7 here. The everlasting Father. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. No end and forever. So the church has had to come back to these basic understandings of the Messiah often throughout her history, and today is no exception. Advent's an important time for us to go back where? Back to the Bible and refresh our understanding and our reasoning as to the nature of the Messiah. Or should I say natures? 100% human, 100% divine. Who is Jesus? We read the Nicene Creed today. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. It's simply too easy to push the real Jesus off to the side or to make him into something that he really isn't, or to make him into something of our own imaginations, right? So we have to go back to the Bible, because oftentimes we too easily want to overemphasize the human side of Jesus. And at other times, especially in history, we overemphasize the divine side of Jesus. And you might argue, I'm overemphasizing that side today. Well, I kind of am. That's kind of my point today. There'll be another sermon where I'm emphasizing the, the human side of Jesus. Today is, is the divine side of Jesus. But we do have to keep them in balance, right? 
John the Evangelist tells us in the gospel that Jesus is the source of light and light for all nations of the world and the cosmos. And so the continuation of the church throughout the ages is a sign of the working of the spirit of the cosmic Christ who existed before creation and will forever, who is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. So the church continues to confess or testify to the divinity of Jesus. The incarnation is a central and distinctive Christian teaching and truth. For the biblical evidence shows that the word Jesus Christ is indeed the divine divine son of the living God, the second person of the Trinity, God who took on flesh and became like us in every way except for sin. So we go back, not just to a creed, but we go back to the Bible, with the creed, what the creed is based upon. The church's confession of the incarnation. How do we know that Jesus is mighty God, everlasting Father who is with us, our Emmanuel? When we go back to the Bible, we see first... Jesus is referred to in the Bible as God, as Lord, our great God and Savior, or even as my Lord and my God, and the great I Am. Secondly, Jesus is shown as equal and unified with God the Father. The exact imprint, Hebrews chapter 1, one with God, fullness of God dwelling in bodily form. Three, Jesus does the works of God, the creator, sustainer, destroyer of death, forgiver of sins, as ruler and judge. Four, Jesus is rightly worshipped and prayers are offered to him in the scriptures. Five, Jesus existed prior to creation. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn. Before Abraham, Jesus said himself, uh, the word before creation, the first and the last. So we go back to the scriptures. And we see Jesus as more than just a human being, more than just a, a wise man who lived a long time ago and had a few good things to say. But Jesus is the divine Son of God in the flesh. Darkness still rejects this. Darkness still rejects the light. But the light shines on through the people of God called the church. Through those who have received and believed in the, word, in the word, Jesus, continue to receive grace upon grace already given. The ones who have allowed the word to transform them, to enlighten them, to enliven them, are then used by the word in the world. As people of renewal. As a catalyst for renewal. As people of light in dark places, and that's you today. God is using you as people of light dark places of this world. So may we not miss the glory of the one and only this year in our Christmas celebrations. The glory that puts darkness on notice. Its days are numbered. Praise be to God for this indescribable gift. Let us pray together. Mighty God, everlasting Father, we thank you for being our light and life in and through Jesus Christ our Lord. Come into our lives, Lord, our homes, our workplaces. Shine into all of those dark places, Lord. Shine into those dark places of our own hearts. Transform the corruption, replace the hatred, temper the anger, eliminate the greed, overcome apathy, and empower us to live like born-again children of the living God. As we look as we look forward to celebrating once again the coming of the Christ child into the world, prepare our hearts to receive him. 
bring us to our knees in repentance and take us to a place of silence and meditation that we may experience the awe and wonder of the Christmas season and raise our voices like the angels to praise you for your wonderful works among us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.